If you are just tuning in, we encourage you to go back and listen from episode one. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Direct Appeal. Prepaid call from Melanie McGuire. On April 23rd, 2007, I was convicted of the murder and dismemberment of my husband. I don't think she has the ability to do what was done to Bill. She's strong in certain ways and very weak in other ways. And her weaknesses are men. He and I did not really get along well in the beginning. And one time they did break up. We didn't have like outright animosity, but we just, we didn't care for one another. Melanie thinks she can fix everything. We decided to go and confront him to get Bill's ex-wife. Lots of yelling and screaming. And she said that she was done and that I would see. I would, have, I would learn the hard way if I chose to go back. Episode 2, The Perfect Marriage. So last time we left off talking about Bill and Melanie, and what we know is that they started sort of uh, coming out of other relationships while they were still in other relationships. Bill was still married, and so there was a situation in which Bill's ex-wife, Marcy, confronted Melanie. And at that point, you know, Melanie could have taken it as a red flag, and she could have left. Marcy said she was done, and at that point, Marcy really was done. Melanie, on the other hand, said she saw that as Bill trying to give it a last go, maybe of his relationship, but he had realized that it was okay, and now they were going to be together, and they would work things out. But Melanie also pointed out that this would be the beginning of many ups and downs, and what she would deem, and probably others would deem, as a tumultuous relationship. Before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about Bill McGuire. First of all, Let us say that we did not contact Bill's family out of respect for them. Um, We were not sure how they would feel about this podcast, and we will not contact them if they do not wish to speak to us. However, if they do, they are absolutely free to contact us. We would be happy to speak to any members of his family on the record or off the record with anything they might want to add. And not only would we be happy to, we would love to, because it is a situation in which we are talking to a lot of people that are from Melanie's family and friends. So it would be only fair to hear the other side. I agree. I agree. I absolutely, again, we we definitely welcome that, but we do not want to impose in a way that would make anyone feel uncomfortable. This investigation, we're we're trying to do something that is um, unbiased and balanced. However, I will say that we had a lot of people decline to participate. And so we did this to the best of our abilities, given those limitations. But yes, anyone from Bill's family who would like to speak to us, we would definitely be happy to. What we do know about Bill McGuire is that he was born in 1964 in Bronx, New York. Bill has two sisters, Nancy McGuire and Cindy McGuire Lagosh. Lagosh is actually raising their two children now. Bill was a U.S. Navy veteran. He made a close friend, his friend John Rice, who is going to become an integral part of this case. And John was featured on Dateline. John testified at the trial. John describes Bill as a charismatic person. He said he has a good sense of humor. He also described one of the themes that would become important here as well, and that is that he describes blackjack as Bill's game and one that he took seriously. As we mentioned before, John Rice and Sue Rice were the people to identify the composite sketch of Bill McGuire, and they also happened to live in Chesapeake, Virginia at the time of Bill's death, which was where 
Bill's body or remains were found. Suitcases were found at that time there. So that's interesting. Yes, it is interesting. <laughs> Very um, coincidental, I guess you could say. You could say that yeah. for sure. Um, again, they're going to become an important part of this case, though, as well. Uh, first to identify him very quickly and testifying not only about their relationship and their friendship, but how they helped in this case. So a little bit about Bill, a little bit about his background. And where was he working at? What was his profession? So Bill has a, a couple of different professions. At the time of his passing, he was working as a computer programmer for NJIT, which is mm -hmm. New Jersey Institute of Technology. Yeah. He also attended pharmacy school at, at a certain point, but did not actually complete that. So computers at the time. Let's get back to he and Melanie. You know, they start dating and this is in the 90s, mid 90s, and they're dating. And, you know, it's been described as a volatile relationship. Melanie's described it as a volatile relationship. Let's hear a little bit. I, we kind of went fits and starts. We would fight, we'd break up, we'd get back together. You know, over the course of the next couple of years, we would sometimes split up for a couple of weeks. He'd hook up with somebody, I'd hook up with somebody, but we'd always kind of come back around. We always were able to communicate, which was one thing that we always said brought us back together. And I had basically at one point moved in with him and a few of his roommates and moved out, maybe, I'm guessing, months later because things were, were not going well. So it was, it was volatile. It was volatile. I had finished college at this point. I was in nursing school. He was in pharmacy school. He was waiting tables. He'd quit or get fired all the time. But he, one thing my husband had was an amazing work ethic. He worked his ass off and he hustled. And he never, if he quit or got fired, he didn't come home without another job. He would come home with another job in hand before he even walked in the door that night. He'd stop off somewhere, get hired invariably. But he had issues when it came to interpersonal relations. He told one of his bosses he hoped the guy's house would burn down. Uh, he worked at another place called the Metuchen Inn, forged the tip on a credit card slip. That gets him arrested. Even though it's a, a municipal level offense, his temper, his attitude ultimately prevailed over his common sense more often than not. There's a pattern with him of sort of impulsivity. But, you know, as he was getting older, I mean, I met him, I was 20, he was 28. So to me, first of all, I'm thinking, well, you know, he just, he hasn't been with me. He just hasn't been with the right woman. I can fix this. I can fix this. And for a time, maybe I even did. But ultimately, the impulsivity would always win out. It's interesting um, that she said I could fix this because if you recall in the last episode, I believe it was both Celine and Melanie's mom mentioned that she would, um, it would, she'd be attracted to people that she could fix. Absolutely. I was thinking the same thing. I, a fixer, a fixer. You yeah. know, you hear that over and over so again. So she's self-proclaimed and those around her are also saying. I think so. Um, so there's a couple other things about this clip that I want to say. First of all, Melanie describes an incident in which she said Bill was arrested as um, he forged a tip. So this is one of those things where it's according to Melanie. Um, she has said it. I actually called the courts and I'm uh, making some attempts to verify whether or not this is true. But at this time, I just want everyone to be aware. Again, this is according to Melanie. But if this is true and we can verify it, it's an incident of him forging signatures and forging something. And that would come into play in the case in a different way. It's something that we probably just want to keep on our radar for later on. And the other thing is that, you know, again, she's describing a relationship of 
back and forth and back and forth. And it, do, it, it didn't sound that great from the start. Yep. It doesn't sound like the, again, not a strong foundation. But for it also seems like that's what Melanie's attracted to. And possibly Bill as well. They sort of like those relationships that have that sort of pull. Do you think it's the drama? Could be. Yeah. They could be attracted to the drama. I mean, she could have left several times, but she, and she said they both left, but they both always made their way back. Always made their way back, Mm -hmm. which is something she would claim later on. I mean, this is, you know, later on, she's going to claim that she and Bill have this terrible fight where he leaves, but he was coming back, according to her, because he always comes back. Yep. Fight, leave, fight, make up. That was kind of the, I guess the passion of their relationship was sort of like that. Mm-hmm. Um, this went on for a while where she describes her relationship and, you know, a couple years of them dating and, you know, they're in love at one point, they break up, but they're more on together than they are off. But then there is a big event that happens that will seriously fracture the relationship or seriously impact the dynamic between the two of them. Melanie's going to tell us about uh, this incident right now. Here's the issue. All this time, he's getting pulled over. He's getting tickets. Loved to drive fast. Absolutely loved it. But at one point, had blamed Marcy for canceling their auto insurance. So that he had ended up getting, you know, driving about insurance, and that had become an issue. He ultimately had 33 license suspensions. Sorry, pause for one second. <laughs> you heard that, correct? Everyone 33. heard that. 33. Driving infractions. Most of them, I believe, related to speeding. Wow. Okay. Quite a lot. It is. And not one of these was a DUI or anything else. This was all points related. This was all speeding, stuff like that. That's impressive. (laughs) Scotch Plains pulled him over one time. And it was, was, I think it was speeding. But it was going to be something that ultimately caused him a license suspension again. And he put this court case off. Finally, because it would have cost him his license, he was entitled to a public defender. And the public defender said to him, well, you're going to have to come up with with a pretty good story or something along those lines, to which my husband always attributed, well, he told me to make up a story. So the story is as follows. He delays this court date for like the better part of a year, hoping that somehow the cop will forget who it is he's pulled over. He ultimately convinced me, and I agreed, to get on the witness stand and say that it was me who was driving. And I don't know how either one of us thought that was going to work, but I think there had been an instance where a date of his kept getting postponed and postponed. The cop didn't even show up to court. And I think that's what he thought was happening. But ahead of time, he had also said, well, you'll just say you were the one that was driving. And in retrospect, it's absolutely absurd. Just want to pause really quickly here. So, you know, hoping that the case gets delayed for a long time is one thing. I mean, I've had a speeding ticket and I've hoped the same thing. Maybe it'll get delayed. Maybe the cop will get transferred. Maybe, you Mm -hmm. know, but hoping that it's get delayed and then the cop will not remember male versus female or have recorded this information down. This plan seems deeply flawed. I I can't even imagine why they would think that would have worked. I said the same thing. It's it's not, you know, there's information that the police officer would have taken down. Surely gender would be, I mean, and the name and, right, okay. Okay. And one of our roommates at the time was a law student. I lied for him and our roommates reported us. They called the county prosecutor's office. They said that Bill was abusive toward me, that Bill had coerced me, and that I had lied for him. They basically asked them to go easy on me, but to go after Bill was what it boiled down to. At least that was what my attorney told me. 
Needless to say, the ruse in Scotch Plains did not work. He had gotten found guilty. He did a couple of weeks in Union County Jail. As a matter of fact, he missed my nursing school graduation because he was in jail at the time. Well, we move out away from those roommates. He gets out. Next thing you know, he gets arrested for suborning perjury. You have 60 seconds remaining. He gets arrested for witness tampering, and I am the witness. So at this point now, we go to see a lawyer. He tells the lawyer, protect me, and he'll find another lawyer. Just do whatever you have to do. Just protect her. Now we go ahead, and ultimately, I am offered PTI, pretrial intervention, in exchange for... You have 30 seconds remaining. Ah, well, we were so close on that one. I'm going to call you right back. Okay. I need, like, it's going to be, like, maybe five, ten minutes in between. No problem. So don't panic. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. So he had taken me to see a lawyer, a lawyer that I think his dad knew the lawyer's dad. In any event, he tells the lawyer to save me, and he'll worry about himself. He'll get his own attorney, because, of course, we have to have separate counsel at this point. Ultimately, the deal they present us is, this is the night before we have a court date. If I give a statement saying that he indeed did coerce me, I will get PTI, which is pretrial intervention. He will get a felony on his record, but he will not do any time. If I don't agree to this, they're going to come after me, try to get me a felony, which, of course, now I have my nursing license. So we don't want that. And they said that they would ensure that he would do time. There's, I mean, just to be clear, there's a level of coercion here, right? They're saying, Melanie, if you plead guilty to this, we can ensure that you get a misdemeanor and Bill will get a felony, but he's not going to serve time. The alternative being, if you want to go ahead with this, you know, we're going to try We're going to try to slam you both with felonies, and he's definitely going to do time. Typical of the plea bargaining system in our country. Yeah, I mean, we talk about this all the time, right? Yep. Um, I mean... Coercion of plea bargaining. If you look at people that are wrongfully convicted, there's a very high percentage of them that pled guilty because of just this. Of course, yeah. I mean, I did some of my research on this as well. I've had plenty of people tell me the same thing. I pled guilty just to get out of jail. I pled guilty just so I didn't have to serve a lot of time. It's a, it's a coercive nature. We do know yep. that, um, or a coercive system, I should yep. say. So I'm basically sort of between a rock and a hard place at this point because I can't trust him to tell him the night before because he's going to go ballistic. Strangely enough, my attorney had sensed this and knew it, and he said, I'm telling you, don't tell him. Don't tell him because if he goes in there, he's going to blow the sky high for you. That's your career. That's everything else. Plus, he's going to do time. He kept selling it as... You know, I'm helping him as well, because any other way, they're sending him to county, if not prison. He found out, like, right before court was called into session, my attorney told his, like, right then, when it was basically too late to do anything. So that's what I did. That almost ended us. Felt completely betrayed. I always felt guilty. So she, they're just dating at this point, correct? Dating and living together. Dating and living together. And because of her plea, she screws him over. Well, it's it's open to your interpretation. So yeah. the way she views it is that she did what was actually in both of their best interest. Um, but the way Bill viewed it was this was such a betrayal. And he stayed with her after that? It's, it's funny. I see from the opposite end. You know, she's saying she feels guilty. But they're in the situation because her boyfriend asks her to take the fall yeah. for a crime. And well, it's not a serious yeah. one. 
but it's still, it's, it's a crime. She's just finished nursing school that he committed. Um, so ultimately, he's asking her to lie, commit perjury in the courts, which yeah. I think is very serious, yeah. regardless of the offense. Of course. And she does it. She agrees to do it. So which can is, you can you say again, what was the, the deal she took? She okay. pleaded guilty to perjury? Uh, sorry, perjury or uh, obstruction. She pled guilty to okay. something, but they made it a misdemeanor offense and they gave her pretrial intervention. Okay. So PTI is, you know, you have to, you have to complete, it's almost like probation. You commit, uh, sorry, you commit, you complete mm-hmm. a term of supervised release and community if, service. Yeah. Everything yep. goes okay. You're off the hook. It's fine. It's a misdemeanor. Mm-hmm. It may have even been something I wonder, it probably is something you can get expunged from your record later yeah. on, possibly. Mm-hmm. And so that was the deal they were going to give her. Now they said they were going to get, he. they were going to give him a felony Either way, they said, so the choice is... Felony for... Obstruction, witness okay. tampering. Gotcha. Um, okay. These are, you know, these are serious felony charges, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. So they had said, we are going to hit him with a felony, but here's the decision. If we give you a plea, we're going to give him a felony, but we're going to give him zero time. Um, so maybe probation. But if you guys, if you don't plead to this and you make us go to court, we're going to hit you both with felonies and gotcha. we're definitely going to get time for him. So part of a way for them to sweeten the deal was to go easy on her boyfriend. Exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. So it is. So now I understand. Bill would not be angry at her for doing this because it's saving his ass. No, no, he yeah. was angry. He was. So, oh, he was definitely what angry. What was the alternative? The alternative would have put Bill behind bars. Well, it sounds I think, like. I think Bill would have gone to trial and, and would he have was fought. hoping he would have gotten off. I, I think so. I mean, I, you know, this is the power of yeah. plea bargaining and coercion. But also, what happened was that Bill at this time was in um, pharmacy school. And I can't remember what year he was in, but he was pretty far into it. Um, and is this what caused him to discontinue pharmacy school? Unfortunately, with a felony, yeah. he had to. Mm-hmm. Um, but Melanie would have also, with a felony, she would have lost her nursing license. And she had just finished nursing school as well. So they both would have been, you know, they both would have had felony convictions. Bill almost certainly would have done some time. I'm not sure what that means. I don't know how long. I'm assuming they would have asked for something like a year and maybe he would have served six to nine months. Um, But certainly it would have been a felony. So in Melanie's mind, she's saving him from doing real time and she's saving her career. But according to Melanie, Bill's primary concern was making sure that Melanie was okay. So it's almost as if what she did was making her okay. And then all of a sudden he's... He didn't... Well, he didn't like it that she didn't She didn't tell him. I understand that. Yeah. And the attorney... But the attorney said, if you tell him... I, I think they knew that also, you know... He's they, a loose cannon. A, bit. Well, a little bit. I think they knew that maybe he was a little hot-headed at the time. And I think, you know, the idea here was if you tell him, he could blow this whole deal up for both of you. Yep. So just stay quiet uh, and go into court. And then, you know, we're just going to plead guilty right in front of the judge. And Bill will know then, basically. So they told him right before. And what sort of aftermath was there? So she does talk about the relationship after, you know, relationship after the perjury and what happens. Um, you know, she said it, it almost ruined them. Yeah, let, let's hear what she has to say about what happened after. It was miserable. And I felt horrendously guilty, even though in my current mindset now, as an adult, 25 years later or 20, however many years later, I realized he had very little right to feel betrayal because... This was his situation. This was his creation from the tickets to the suspensions to his defense idea. Now, I agreed to go along with it. I bear complete responsibility for that. That was my choice. 
his relationship with the roommates was so poor that they had no compunction in picking up the phone and calling the cops on him. So, you know, as much as he put this kind of all off on me at this point, because if I had told him, well, if I had told you, what would you have done? Oh, I wouldn't have done anything. Okay. Just historically, that's not the case. And I think deep down, he knew it too. And that was probably, if he genuinely believed that, I think that that would have been the end. But I think deep down, he did know that he put me in a very, very difficult situation, a very precarious position. Ultimately, um, it did work. We, I got PTI. I got community service. He did not go to jail. Uh, but he did have that felony. So I remember felony precluded him from becoming a licensed pharmacist. So here he is in his fifth year of pharmacy school. And he's having a hard time to begin with. But now this is just the death knell for that. And that was incredibly difficult for him to take, as it would be for any of even under the best of circumstances. Because, you know, now at this point, somebody's telling you that what you've been working towards for years, you, your ass out, you better find something else. Oh, he was very, very angry. This is when he started to go back to Atlantic City quite a bit. And, you know, it had always been recreational, whether it was going to, you know, one of the big casinos or going to one of the the hotels on the outskirts where they would party or play cards. As time went on, he began to play more and more amounts of money. So now he's getting comped in the casinos. So he's got less interest in these sort of small off games, whether they're friends of his from up here, from down there. I've heard stories of both over the years, but he's basically moving exclusively to casinos, at least at this point in time. So I'm sure most people know, but when you get comped in casinos, they're giving you free hotels, free dinners. Trying to entice you to come back. Getting, you know, they want you to come back. Because they know if you're in the building, you're going to spend, lose a lot more money. That's the hope, right? Casinos were not built on winners, I guess, is the whole idea. (laughs) Okay. The first day of my new job as a nurse, I had gone to work and I tried to call him a few times throughout the day just to, you know, tell him how I was doing. Not there, not there, not answering. I get home. He's not there. He doesn't come home that night for the first time. He was in Atlantic City. The attitude when he came back was, well, you know, you had your first day of your new career, and I'm not going to have that. So I'm beginning my career, and he needs at this point to look for another. And remember, he's also, he's in his early 30s. I had suggested at one point that he try computers. That was what he had done in the Navy. He was in the Navy for eight years when he was just out of high school. And it was something he had an aptitude for. Ultimately, he enrolled at NJIT, and he would end up graduating from there and working there. But he never forgave me completely. There would be times that it would still come back out of him, even years later. You know, married, have kids, whatever, and he'd still make a comment every once in a while. I think this was sort of the paradigm shift where I was so concerned about him and was aware of my feeling my own guilt about this that I started to be aware of I guess his needs more than my own and it didn't even register it didn't even occur to me to be mad at him I was so busy worrying if he was mad at me a lot here yeah um So, I mean, there's substantial damage to the relationship, but they decide to stay together and they're, you know, they're trying to work it out. And Melanie is embarking on her career, right? And Bill, as she said, he's older. So what is he going to do now? 
And it sounds like as his career dies, hers, you know, is beginning. Yep. Yeah, and she's right. And he's, he's older. He's eight years older, I think. So, you know, he is in his Probably early. a little jealousy there. I have to imagine. I mean, like she said, you know, I mean, I'm, he was still mad. He was still angry. It still came up at times where, you know, in relationships, when you have some something big, you know, when you get mad and whatnot, you, you throw that on each other's faces. Yeah. I'm sure that that happens. I think it's also important to realize one of the things she says here is that he goes to Atlantic City and he's moved to the casinos now because he was he liked to play blackjack. And now but without a job, that is problematic. I'm wondering if he's gambling her money. It is problematic without a job. <laughs> I don't know what money they had or did not have at that point. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he was playing seriously or not. You know, I'm sure he was just angry that day. Yeah. He needed an outlet. But as she says, it's the first time he doesn't come home. I don't know that he called or anything. Before so. cell phones, correct? Mid-90s? Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, this was before <laughs> cell phones, right? <laughs> I'm sure the room had a phone, but I, I don't think that, you know, he, she may have had an idea of where he went, but I don't think that he was direct with her and where he was going. Mm-hmm. And and I'm sure, like she said, he I'm sure he was resentful. She's embarking on a career and what's he going to do with his now? Although I think we should also look at one of the things Melanie said that Bill was very good at was getting jobs. Yep. He, she said always he was a hustler. If he lost a job, he so would he go So he must out. have been personable. Yeah, I I don't get that impression from what we've learned about him thus far. But if you're able to secure a job that quick after losing one, you have to imagine that there's something about you. Yeah, no, perhaps he comes across as, you know, a a strong personality, too, who likes to work. And Mm -hmm. um, he is able to get jobs pretty quickly. And I think and Melanie's going to say, because we're going to talk a little bit more about life after and what happens after this big event in their lives and when they do move on. And she'll talk about Bill getting another job. You know, she says he was angry, but he pulled himself up, you know, um, and he went out and found another job and he didn't he didn't like sulk on it long or whatnot. And they're not married still at this point, correct? No, okay. they're not married at this point. So she's going to tell us a little bit more about her relationship after this incident and what happens. Well, he was actually still in school. We had ended up getting married. We were still kind of up and down with the relationship. At one point, I was working with egg donors. So I'm working with a fairly young population at this point. The requirements were that the women had to be under 34 years of age. And I had a patient who had a very unique name, a hyphenated name. And it turns out I find her name and her telephone number in his things in his paperwork. He's working in a restaurant in the town where she was from, and I'm guessing he met her there. Statistically, the chances of this are, are remarkable. She was an opera singer, and even at trials, Cindy testified, his sister testified to the fact that he had told her he had been with an opera singer. This was something that I was amazed to find. And, you know, we, to be very honest, I gave as good as I got. I'd find something like that. Okay, screw you. I'd go out. I'd meet somebody. You know, this was kind of a back and forth thing until around, I would say, about 1997, 1998. It started to to calm down and settle down. He was succeeding at NJIT. He was still waiting tables. And he was going to Atlantic City at that point, but it wasn't, it didn't seem out of control at that point. She does mention how It amazed her or surprised her that he was, you know, maybe cheating or sleeping around. But based on their history, I don't I can't imagine why that wasn't sort of just more of the same. I think it was because she's she had said that it was a patient uh, where she practiced. 
So she worked at a fertility clinic? Correct. She was a nurse there. Yes. She originally wanted to become an ER nurse, but I think she was actually an egg donor. She decided to donate her eggs. I guess they liked her and they wound up offering her a job. And it was not the exciting career she thought, but she said it turned out even better. She absolutely loved being a fertility nurse. Um, So I guess she was... And again, this is according to Melanie. This is unverified. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess she had discovered that there was an infidelity, she says. And, and it seems like they were married at this point. She kind of slipped that in there that they got married while he was still in school. And then... She did. She talks about the marriage and children a, a little bit more in a, in a minute. Also, she said, take note, I gave as good as I got. Fidelity does not seem to be a priority in their relationship or in mm-hmm. their marriage. Um, for either one of them. No. So, uh, you know, I'm not trying to disparage him and I'm I'm not even trying to disparage her. It just seems like they got used to the infidelities and they were able to accept it and they took each other back and moved on. It seems like if you do it, well, I'm going to do it. It's almost like vindictive in a way. It It is. It was, right? And maybe it's part of the drama and maybe it was part of the thrill for them or maybe not. Maybe it was mm-hmm. just how they got even with each other. I'm not sure. But yeah. on both parts, admittedly, um, you know, at trial later on, we'll hear about Melanie's affair. But we also heard or there was also a witness that testified that she had an affair, a, a brief encounter, sexual encounter, maybe with Bill. So we definitely there are a number of infidelities that are, you know, known and, and documented. But yet they still they still get married and they still have children. Um, they're still moving on with their lives and moving on with their plan, as Melanie said. So let's hear her talk about that. I had done uh, a couple of egg donation cycles for research purposes, and those are compensated cycles. After that, we had enough money, we felt, to get married. My friends were basically all getting married. People were having kids. And, and he and I still had the same goals. We still wanted that normal family, that nice house. And we used that money or a portion of that money for my room. Then about a week before our wedding, I found out that I was pregnant. He had a very sort of dry, terse way about him, I, you know, and it, it wasn't always malicious. I walked into the house. I said, so I have something to tell you. And he goes, ah, you're going to tell me you're pregnant, aren't you? But I mean, he was, he was happy. We were happy. I was having... I wouldn't call it a difficult pregnancy per se, but it was not agreeing with me. I looked horrendous, and my husband would tell me that. He would tell me he was, you know, how upset he was that I was letting my appearance go. Well, I was 182 pounds by the time I delivered our first child, and it was all water weight, and it just, it hadn't agreed with me, but I was absolutely head over heels in love with this baby, and so was he. And things were really, really good for a time. He cautioned me in the beginning, I don't want to see you go through that again. I had had an emergency cesarean, very dramatic. Basically, anything that could have gone wrong toward the end did. Things were were really pretty good for the first year or so. What changed exactly, I couldn't say. I know that we did have, between the wedding and the baby, we had a chunk of money. And at first, he was going down to Atlantic City and getting pretty good return on his money. He was a decent player. The problem was that when he began to lose, he would chase his losses. As I know, I mean, it's human nature. Obviously, that's how casinos stay in business. That's what I would do. But the amounts slowly began to creep higher and higher. And that put a strain on us, but not as much so. If everything else was okay, I was actually content to even just, I don't want to say let that go, but that was less important to me than, you know, if we were getting along. 
our son's first birthday, we were down at my mom's house for his party. It was just family. It was my parents, my brother, and his sister and her husband. And at one point or another, he had gotten into an argument with his sister and picked up and left and left me there with the baby, your own son's first birthday party. So eventually, his sister and her husband drive the baby and I home. And I, you know, go into the house like, hey, what's up? What do you... And he wouldn't even speak to me. And again, this argument had nothing to do with me. It was between him and Cindy. And it's things thought out eventually. But this is where I began to see a little bit of that, that really unreasonable, like, dude, what the hell did I have to do with anything? You and she are fighting and I'm over here with the baby. You left your wife and, and your kid to go storm off. And he didn't talk to me for a couple of days after that. Um, when I said, what would you have had me do? What was I supposed to do? You should have left with me. Okay, so I've got a baby in a high chair with cake all over his face. You and your sister are arguing over a board game, I might add. You get up and storm out. First of all, how the hell do I know where you're going? I don't know if you're walking around the block. I don't know if you're driving around, coming back. I have no idea what you're doing. So I didn't know how I was supposed to know he was leaving. It's not like he looked at me and said, get your shit, we're leaving. These were the questions that I would find myself asking during arguments that, that really didn't necessarily have an answer. Looking back... I, I realized that the issue probably didn't even have anything to do with me, but I was the other adult in the room. I was the person that kind of ended up being sort of a, a natural target. Afterwards, he begins going to Atlantic City more and more. Eventually, the wedding money is gone. The baby's money is gone. When he had been christened, thousand here, a few thousand there, you know, depends on what relative, but his money as well. Because we had put it all together at this point, we said, you know, the aspiration was still a house, a down payment on the house. And so that was all literally in the same lockbox under the bed. And again, it didn't happen. It didn't happen instantaneously. You know, there was up and down. There was up and down. First, it was he wouldn't go down there unless he could take 3000 with him. Then we'd argue about that. Then he wouldn't go down unless he could take 5000 Then it was 8000 All told, between the wedding and the baby, over thirty. Over thirty thousand. Eventually, it was it was gone. He was sorry, but this was the most that it had ever been in terms of of money and losses because it was the most we had really had around at a given time. So, how do you diagnose a gambling problem? Right. You know the clinical diagnosis. From what I understand, it would be one it um, affects your daily, I guess. Um, right. It's, I mean, it would be classified like other addictions, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of the obsession, the mental obsession with it. And, you know, when it is impacting your, your daily. Taking your kids' communion money or christening money doesn't seem healthy. No, I mean, I think we can agree that taking, you know, the wedding money and the, the christening money, I mean, we may not know the degree of the problem, but surely we can agree that that's, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's an area now where it's, it's definitely impacting their relationship and their family. And I have no idea what was, we don't know, frankly, what was mm -hmm. going on at, at, with his life at the time. Yeah. And I don't know if that exact amount was right or whatnot. But there are records that show um, Bill spending on gambling because he was comped and it comes out at the trial later on. So, so it has been confirmed that at least some of the gambling. Certainly. It was also confirmed, though, interestingly, though, Bill actually won a lot. You know, he, he had a number of wins. So, you know, you never really, <laughs> unless you're, you know, those professional poker players or the professional players who actually do this for a career, 
you're not really winning. You're always chasing that next, as you say, like the next high. And Mm -hmm. then there's definitely an issue with the gambling. I thought the fight that they had was interesting. So um, Linda had told us about this. I'm not sure if you remember the fight during uh, Melanie's uh, child's first birthday. The the first part that strikes me as funny, though, is the fight over board games. Have you ever been with like people? I've been with like two couples when they got into a fight over board game. And one of them was so severe, like I thought they were going to break up. And in another one, I saw someone like throw a marker over Pictionary at her, you know, spouse. So it could get nasty. Games are, you know, games are one of those (laughs) difficult areas. Like don't play taboo or something else, you know. (laughs) Did Linda, um, and to tell you the truth, I don't recall that exact part of the conversation, but I'm assuming there's maybe she, there's got to be more to the story. This is coming from... The story that we we do know from Linda and she was there was simply that his sister Cindy and Bill, they had a fight, whether it was over a board game or there's something else said, I really don't know. But it did happen that Bill stormed out and he did leave Melanie there um, with her son. And then according to Melanie, when she got home, he was angry with her, angry in general, and didn't Mm -hmm. talk to her for a couple of days. So, I mean, I think there's a pattern to their fighting also. I think there's a pattern. You know, he might have been heated again. We don't know what the fight was and over. And he probably took the car seat and had the baby get home. I know. <laughs> Not relevant. But. <laughs> but but actually important, right? Like when she said my sister-in-law, yeah. I assume she meant Cindy and her husband. Maybe they had kids. They had an extra car seat. Maybe. maybe. I'm not, <laughs> not sure. <laughs> maybe there's another felony committed here in the course of this. Another driving infraction. Right? Like. I don't know. Uh, I'm not really sure, but I, you know, you see that after, you know, this is at the point where they, they are married, they have their first child, things were going well, but I think there's, now you're seeing some, you know, a a downward trend. Melanie also describes, if you'll notice, when she's describing times of when Bill's gambling more, I just assume that these aren't great times. Mm -hmm. They seem to coincide with what she says about them, not necessarily being, you know, great times. Well, there's also, um, Melanie got pregnant again. And I think this also created a hardship in their relationship. Uh, Let's hear, I think Melanie's going to talk about that now. At one point, we had decided I really did not want my son to be an only child. I wanted to have another baby. Bill was a little reluctant at first. Eventually, he did acquiesce. And he did say, okay, let's let's have another. My son, my first son, was such an easy baby initially that it was like even he had to agree, well, this doesn't seem all that hard. Okay, fine. So I got pregnant in um, just like May of 2001. Things went precipitously downhill uh, from there to the point where before my second child is born, I begin having an extramarital affair about a month before I'm due turns out that my husband left me the day the day our son was born later that afternoon to go to Tennessee where he met uh, a woman named Elizabeth who would testify at the trial that she had had a brief relationship with my husband. It was a business trip. I think it's evident that this is not working for either of us at that point. Wow. Having an affair when you're one month away from... This became a huge issue at trial. It, I mean, what what man wants to have an affair with a woman who's eight months pregnant? <laughs> well, her boss. And yeah. Oh, it was her boss. It was her boss, um, Brad Miller, Dr. Miller at the time. Um, I guess they had gotten closer in working together. But also, I think the whole pregnancy, uh, things were going downhill. As she says, he went on a business trip while she was in labor. And um, he did have, again, he had a one, uh, I think a one night affair, uh, fling with some woman who did testify at trial about this. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what you have is, you know, she's... Signs of trouble. 
Yeah, I mean, she's, yeah, she's eight months pregnant and she's embarking on an affair. This affair, however, would be very different. This would not be, you know, what we have talked about with these flings and with um, infidelity. This is the affair or the relationship that would really change the course. Um, and, and this is basically later on what the prosecution will say was the big motive for this crime. So we don't want to talk necessarily too much about him, but we're going to have to give a little bit of background about who she got involved with and how this sort of came to fruition. So let's hear a little bit about how this relationship came about. Hi, Matt, Brad, at a conference, maybe 1999. I had met him at, at dinner just briefly in passing, and the partners had mentioned that he would be coming along and joining us. And once he did, in fact, join the practice, I was assigned to be his nurse, specifically. Each doc kind of had their own head nurse. I became close with him, and ultimately our families actually socialized and spent some time together, which does not make me the best person in the world at all. Uh, certainly not proud of it, but that's how it happened. And he and I ended it initially, like I think after the first couple of weeks or the first month, because I said I, I wanted to work on things with my husband. And it wasn't even that I was still in love with him as much as I wanted to have a successful marriage for my kids' sake. I came from a home where my parents were divorced. My husband came from a home where his parents divorced and remarried each other three times. So needless to say, a little family dysfunction was something that I think it's what kept us both there as long as it did, because certainly he could have left as well. After that fight, it was that just sort of took the, the will out of me either way, and Brad and I ended up back together. And a lot of times, time that Brad and I spent together was not this super hot affair. You know, he's playing with the kids in the car while I'm going to Target. We have 60 seconds remaining. Or he's taking the kids pumpkin picking with me because my husband is passed out and won't get up. The resentment just built and built and compounded. So he was married as well. He was married as well and had children, small I, children I as do well. want to ask a quick question. She does reference that fight at some point just now. Um, Melanie was saying something about things after that fight is when she started to heat things up again with Brad. Is that referring to the fight after the first birthday, you think? No, 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 that one was earlier, but there's a fight that we're going to cover next. I bet it's just, we might be a tad bit early gotcha. on this uh -huh. one, but yeah, there's a fight that she talks about and she says, it's the fight where I should have left, oh, uh, where she should have. It's like the straw that should have broke the camel's back, I guess. <laughs> should have broke the camel's back, but the, the affair, the affair that she had was, it was more than an affair for it her. It was a more emotional. It wasn't just sexual. It was, it was uh -huh. and, and what he testified to as well, the both of them testified that they were deeply in love with each other. Um, they were, they were together in this, well, in an affair uh, for three years. Wow. And it doesn't, I mean, it certainly doesn't paint her in a nice light as well. Um, she's having an affair with someone who is also married and has children. And she's and hanging out with she's them. She's spending time <laughs> with their family and their, you know, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, which she says was just part of their relationship, but it is also, um, it, it's not, you know, it's icky, yeah. right? There's mm -hmm. no other way to look at this, but say like, yep. this is not. And she admits that as well. She she does say, I believe somewhere oh, yeah. in there that this wasn't the best thing I should have done. No. So there are a lot of things that would come out as well. Um, and one of them being, you know, how they got involved when she was super pregnant. And this came out as one of these awful facts at trial. Things that, you know, her parents and what she says is, you know, my 84-year-old grandmother heard that I had some type of 
sexual interaction when I was that pregnant, you know, and it was embarrassing and not my finest moment. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she's pretty upfront about that part. She's pretty upfront about saying, look, this is, this is what I've done. This looks really bad for me. And, you know, she leaves it at that. But the relationship with Brad Miller was transformative. She was having this affair. She was in love. And she'll describe it later on for us. But what she says also is that they were in love, but they had no immediate plans to leave their spouses. She said they both had small children. As she was talking about, um, they did not want a divorce. They wanted to raise the kids together, whether dysfunctional or not. They kind of wanted to keep it together. And that would also come out later at trial that, you know, the prosecution had asked him, the doctor on the stand, had you talked about leaving your spouses anytime in the near future? And he said, no, in fact, we didn't have any plans. And when he brought this up with Melanie, she was kind of like, what are you talking about? We can't even broach this right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's the motive, but they, you also see that they didn't quite have this plan to get out. Neither one of them had this plan to get out of their relationships anytime in, in the near future. But things got worse with Bill, with her relationship. And she does have a fight with Bill um, and this might have been the fight she's talking about. Let's hear her uh, tell us about this fight. She she says that this is definitely the fight where she should have known. Like, this was the one where she should have gone. When I look back and I identify where, kind of where I really went wrong, like what the point of no return was for me, I know when I should have left. And I know it was a particular argument that we had that I absolutely should have left. And I did leave, but I went back. I went back that same night. He had been pulled over on his way home from his restaurant job. And this was somehow my fault. This was a ticket that would again suspend his license. It was my fault because I would not move to Virginia, where his friends lived and where he had lived initially with his first wife. I would not leave my family, leave my career, go down there sight unseen. Remember, again, Virginia is Chesapeake Bay is where Bill's body was found. And And where his friends lived. Yeah. I insisted on staying in New Jersey. And as a result, he had to work two jobs. And as a result of having to work that second job, he got pulled over. And that this was, again, somehow my fault. And he basically said, you fucking cunt, if you're there, when I get home, I'm going to fucking kill you. That was on the answering machine. I wasn't even picking up anymore. I mean, the screaming was just ridiculous. And at that point, I put both kids in the car, probably uh, 10, 11 o'clock at night at this point, and I just got into the car and, and drove. I did not want any of us to be there when when he got home. He came home, and he called my mother. And my mother had company at that point from out of town, so they were not expecting getting a call that late at night to begin with. And, you know, now you've got family there, and people are asking questions. So my mother calls me, says, what the hell is going on? Well, I'm not going to tell her what he said on that message, not at that point in time, because she's going to tell my father, and that's going to be the end of any relationship that they could ever possibly have had. At that point, in the back of my mind, even though I'm having an affair, even though I'm still at this juncture holding out hope that there's there's going to be a way back from this, and that would have effectively slammed the door on that. My mother, not knowing that, knowing that her daughter is out driving around in the car with two infants in the middle of the night, talks me into going back, and I do. And again, he's not talking to me, he's not speaking to me, but he's not screaming any longer either. So we sort of reached a, a plateau at that point. And we were silent for a number of days, and then he just started talking to me like nothing was going on. Certainly that was the most extreme argument uh, that I could 
remember at that point, but there would be others. So I'm just curious, just in like the grand timeline, right. any sense on how long it was between this blow up and the um, actual murder of Bill? I'd have to look back at that, but I think I, I want to say it was a while. I'm wondering, are we talking months, years? Oh, yeah. Okay. We're, ta- we're talking a, a chunk of time for okay. sure. So not within. No, the, okay. no not anywhere near. And in fact, this wasn't even brought up at trial as a thing. Oh, okay. This is just one of the fights that they had. So for her, what made it such a... I guess the the fight where she should have left is the fact that he called her something so nasty. Is that because it doesn't sound like he was physical with her? It almost like I was expecting to hear worse. Not that I think what he called her was okay, but she just said in hindsight she had a feeling that that she should have just gone like this. She should have kept going in her car, not literally kept going, yeah. but she had a feeling that she should have left. Okay, um, she'll say it later on. She thinks that if she had, it would have just changed the course of their lives. Yeah, and she thinks that you know that that would have been the best time. Maybe just one fight too many. She's in the car in the middle of the night. Her kids must have been quite young at this point. They were quite young. Yes. Yeah, they were quite young. And I do remember her mom. I remember Linda telling me about this fight as well. I don't know if it was on the recording or not, but I remember her. She didn't know exactly what Bill had said or that he was angry, but she was like, my daughter's out in the middle of the night driving around with these two, you know, babies. And Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going on. And I recall that as well. yeah, Yeah. I remember thinking the same thing. So for Melanie, this is just a point, you know, it's one of those points of, hindsight Hmm. where she looks back and thinks things could have been different had I done something very different at this point. Next time on Direct Appeal, Melanie and Bill pick up the pieces again and move on. They purchase a new home, but after the closing, Bill is never seen again alive. What does Melanie say happened? Tune in next time. Direct Appeal is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. The story arc was written by Megan Sachs. Music and underscore by Dessert Media. Recorded, mixed, and edited by Justin Crowell at JC Studios. Barry Janae provided legal research and advised on various points in the making of this podcast. Special thanks to Alan Tuckerman, whose work was integral to this production. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing tips at directappealpodcast.com.